0: I want to invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Uh, as we've been going through this series this summer, uh, that we've talked a lot about how does the gospel transform us. And in the month of June, we were looking at it on a very personal level. How does the gospel, what does that mean for us as individuals? The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ defeated sin and death And we no longer have to pay the consequences of our sin. That he has offered forgiveness to us when we call out on his name. And when he becomes the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our life, it changes our life. Amen? And so we've been kind of using really three different sections of scripture, if you will, throughout the summer. So that was June. Then in July and now August, we're talking about now what? How does the gospel that should be continually transforming ourselves as we preach the gospel to ourselves every day, what does that look like for those around us? So I'm going to start Romans 12, 1 and 2 is the passage that, again, our goal was that everybody would have this memorized by the end of the summer. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In today's words, it makes sense. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Those two words that we keep going over, no longer be conformed, being confirmed means that what's happening around you, that what's happening in the world is turning you into what the world wants. Being transformed is the work of the Holy Spirit through God's word, through Jesus working in your hearts and lives to transform you into more of his character. And as you are transformed, that is what starts to affect what is immediately around you. So we've been in Romans 12:1 and 2. Uh, David Kaya and Cam Stewart, were both in Colossians chapter 3. Um, we've been in First Peter, last week we were in Psalm. But this is the week that we try to bring it all together. Next week we will be going back into Matthew chapter 8. So what does this gospel transformation look like? So I want to ask you, what is your scorecard for transformation? Everyone's like, I didn't get that homework assignment, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, When we first moved down here, there was a team, I believe, of 32 people that moved down here to help plant Hope Church uh, seven years ago, seven years ago, starting in June, July and August. Um, Jose and Carly, and I think the Bryants, and Dana, who's in the back, I believe, um, hopefully I'm not offending anybody, oh, and Cam and Sarah Stewart, you guys were already living here, you didn't really move here, Um, and a couple like Joe and Caitlin, they they moved here from California, but we had never met them before. Um, that's about all that's left from that original team that moved here. And we went through a thing called Cypress Project with Neil McGlowan, and it's something that uh, you've heard me talk about. It. It's something that uh, delivered some very spiritual gut punches to me. But in one of the sessions, he talks about scorecard. What is your scorecard for your church? In other words, specifically, what are the goals of your church? We recently just did this uh, as we've been thinking the last couple of years. How do we start? Uh, middle school and senior high, 9th through 12th ministry, which by the way starts next week, two weeks, two weeks. So what is our scorecard? And one of the things in our scorecard was how do we disciple middle school and 9th through 12th graders, how do we disciple them so that when they leave, they stay involved in church, they know what to look for in a church, they know what their spiritual giftings are, Um, they know in churches that I was brought up in, this was never said to me verbally, but it was like, hey, go out get married, have kids, and then come on back to church. So how do we, our scorecard is, how do we teach, and we've already seen this with our, with our Hope kids, how are we teaching them that they are part of the church? They're not a side project. How do we approach middle school and 9th through 12th graders and say, okay, when you leave, these are your spiritual giftings. This is how you serve in a church. This is how you are part of a discipleship group that you don't walk away from it. And that is ultimately what our scorecard is. We don't necessarily, uh, this sounds bad, we don't necessarily care about, I'm trying to think of like family-friendly terminology now that our children are in here. We don't care about derriers and seats. We want to know who is continuing in their walk with Christ after they leave high school. That is a scorecard. So then what we set up to achieve that and many other parts of the scorecard are going to play into our everyday life. That is what we did with, our, with Hope Church from the very beginning. What is our Scorecard for Hope Church. How do we know that the goals that we've set out to accomplish, according to the Bible, that we are achieving them? Now, here's the thing. Every single person that is in this room has a scorecard. You just may not know it. We are all living towards some form of a goal. We are all living towards something in our lives that drives us. It drives our everyday decision-making. It drives where we send our kids to school. It, it drives where we work. It drives how we spend our money. It, it, all of those things that are important to us are our scorecard, but, and I'm just going to speak out loud here, very few of us have put much thought into it. We usually tend on doing whatever our parents did, or we end up doing whatever's opposite than our parents did. Uh, We do what people around us are doing, what the people we work with are doing. We do what we think is going to make us look right when we are at church or with our families. And those become, without even realizing it, the scorecards that we chase. Those are our goals that we pursue. So all of us have a scorecard. When we see passages like uh, where we've been, Romans 12 and 1 Peter and Colossians 3, uh, hopefully today in Colossians 3 we'll begin to develop exactly what our scorecard should look like, but also be willing, as uh, we'll open up the service, we will humble ourselves, be able to look at God's holy word, and be able to accept the things and be able to see the things that we need to change in our life. So I want to start with a quick review of Colossians for the first hour, hour and a half, and then jump into Just kidding. It's just so hard for me to jump into a book of the Bible and just a random passage without explaining how we got to this point. As I've said before, Paul, um, he was a lawyer. So his letters are written in a way of presenting a case. And so most of his letters written to different churches are presenting a case to them. And what we see in Colossians is he lays out this beautiful presentation of why. Now, Colossians and Ephesians were probably written around the same time. They're very similar. Ephesians is just a little bit more in depth than Colossians kind of summarizes. Uh, So I just want to kind of walk through as quickly as I possibly can and just point out a couple key verses. So in uh, chapter one, you might want to write these down. Something when I do these quick overviews of books that I hope you're doing is uh, writing it down, but also Uh, A couple months ago when he just did a quick overview of 1 Corinthians, uh, somebody in the church said, hey, by the way, I realized I didn't know that much about 1 Corinthians, so I went on YouVersion and started doing a devotional for the month through 1 Corinthians. So there's tons of tools out there. So again, this is just a brief overview. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, 1 through 14 is Paul's reason for writing as he kind of presents his Case, so to speak. And I would just point out to me the key verses, verse 10. He says, So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. If you are keeping track of a scorecard, that's number one. That is what Paul, this is the reason, is because he wants them to understand how to live their life worthy of the Lord. Uh, Something that we are continually commanded to do is bear fruit. Something that doesn't bear fruit is dead. It is chopped down. It is, uh, in John 15, it is pruned away. Uh, The next section, chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, uh, Paul is talking about Jesus' supremacy over all things. Uh, The key verse being 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Verses 21 through 23. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation that should be an amen moment there if we know ourselves we know just how powerful christ is if he can present me without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel this is the gospel that you heard and that has been preached to every creature under heaven and of which i paul have become a servant. I'm sorry if I'm mixing up words. It is very dark up here. The next section is chapter uh, one, verse twenty-four through two five. This is Paul's passion. Paul's explaining that his passion is the church, the body of Christ. Verses two through three says, "My goal again, scorecard." This is a goal. This is something that we should pursue. My goal is that you may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul's passion is the church, that they would know Christ more and more as they grow. Then chapter 2, verses 6 through 15, uh, Paul explains that everything that we need is provided in Christ. Look at verse 6 and 7. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with Thankfulness. Read 13 through 15 later on tonight when you get home. Chapter 2, verse 16 through 23, he's explaining that there is freedom in Christ. Look at verse 20, if I can find it. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why? As though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Again, a scorecard. A scorecard tells us the rules that we should be living by. And he's saying, why, if you've accepted Christ, why, if you understand that all that Christ has done for you and in you and is continuing to transform you through the gospel, why, oh why, do you continue to submit yourself to the rules of this world? Have you ever been playing a sport and you keep getting in trouble, and you realize that you are playing the wrong sport. Everybody else is playing basketball, and you keep tackling them, because in your mind, you're playing football, or as I call it, that's how I play basketball. That's what he's saying. Why are you playing in the wrong field? Why are you playing everything incorrectly? You are now in God's family. You are now partakers with christ and yet you're continuing to play by the rules of the world you have freedom and that brings us to our main text for tonight uh, chapter 3 verses 1 through 11 so read with me if you will since then you have been raised with christ set your heart on things above where christ is seated at the right hand of god set your minds on things above not on earthly things. Where you died and your life is now hidden with christ in god when christ who is your life appears then also you also will appear with him in glory put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature sexual immorality impurity lust evil desires and greed which is idolatry because of these the wrath of god is coming but Christ is all and is in all. That was just the intro. Tonight, I want to look at what is it for us to put off? What is it to put on? What is it to, now we are no longer not just playing for that team, but we're in a different sport. The goals are different. If you play golf the way that you play basketball, You will lose if you're going for high score. I found that out the hard way. You want the low score in golf, you want the high score in basketball. Why then do we continue to put ourselves under the wrong set of rules in our everyday life? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's called idol worship. We can come up with as many other things that we want to call it, but plain and simple, it is idol worship. Uh, A couple, two years ago, when we all were reading through the Bible together, um, the entire Bible, one thing that kept popping out to me over and over and over and over and over over again was there's always idol worship. All through the Old Testament, there is idol worship. They worship all sorts of idols. Then you get to the New Testament, and it turns out they're worshiping idols. They're going to temples. They're uh, doing all of these practices in that Roman world where they are worshiping idols. And it hit me, we never talk about idol worship, or very rarely do we talk about idol worship. We say things like, hey guys, try not to do this. But very little do we actually call it what it is, and it is idol worship. So, point number one, verses one and two, we are told to set your hearts and minds on things above. Set your hearts and minds on things above. Now this is Paul really demonstrating culturally. Uh, He's talking to both uh, the uh, Jewish people and he's talking to the Roman people. And they use different parts of their body to talk about themselves as a whole. So the heart and mind is everything. He wants to make sure it is very clear that everything about you, whatever it is that makes up you as a person, that makes up your drive, Everything is putting your mind in the right place. When you are looking at your scorecard, that the things that you are aligning yourself with are not of this world, but are in heaven. In other words, what lasts for eternity, what will always be, what God has told us to put at our forefront. Another thing you've heard me say a lot is, what you sacrifice for is what you worship. If you're ever wondering what you truly worship, all you have to do is say, what am I giving up this for this? And I normally tell a story that uh, made me realize that, working at a drug rehab center, but again, we have Hope Kids, so I'm not going to get into that. But we always make sacrifices for what we truly worship. Uh, When somebody says, man, I really want to do that, but I have to do this other thing, it's like, then you don't really want to do that. Because what you really want to do is what we always end up doing. So set your hearts and minds on things above. What we sacrifice for is what we worship. If we are setting our mind on the heavenly or eternal things, this shapes our lives differently than the world around us. The problem that Paul is pointing out is that normally we want worldliness. If we are being truly honest, we want worldliness. And a little side of Christianity when convenient. I'll plug it in right here. It works at this time, but not the rest of the week. It works at this time, but not the rest of the month. Paul is saying that holiness is when the gospel so permeates our lives that it is noticeable to everyone we come in contact with. That when we have made the standards that we're following, the scorecard we're following on heavenly and earthly things, the world will take notice around us. Not because of anything that we do, but because how powerful God is that he works in our weakness. This goes back to Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we are either being conformed to the world or we are uh, are transforming our world for Christ. And understand, we are either being conformed or we are transforming there is no middle ground. You haven't hit a happy medium, you're being conformed. The sad part is, we love idols. I mean, we love them. We will chase after them. We will do whatever it takes. And God designed us to worship. God designed us. He created us to worship him. Sin entered the world. And we take all of the creativity that God gave us. We take all of those desires for worship that God gave us. And because of sin, we put them somewhere else. John Calvin once wrote, Every one of us is, even from his mother's womb, a master craftsman of idols. Uh, A couple weeks ago, Tab and I were watching a documentary on a uh, tragedy that happened um, almost 20 years ago, and uh, I, in some ways, was part of it, and I've never really talked about it with uh, Tab, we've never really discussed it, she's never asked any questions about it. And we were watching this documentary, and it was brought up by somebody who was there for it. And Tab started asking me, uh, we didn't know each other at the time, hey, where were you when this happened? And I told her, and she says, and and what happened here, and who were you with? And she started asking me all these questions, she looked at me, and she said, Rob, you've never talked to me about this, ever. Like, you've mentioned it briefly, but you've never talked about it. I said, that was a really dark time in my life. It affected me probably more. Uh, It affected my emotions more uh, because for two and a half weeks afterwards, and I'm somebody, if you know me well, stuff happens. If you know me well, you know I've been around a lot of death. I've worked in rehab centers. I've worked in uh, all these horrific places. And I said, but for two and a half weeks, I was not the right person. The girl I was dating at the time thought we were going to break up. I almost lost my job. My boss thought something was seriously wrong with me. I was angry constantly. I mean, just not a laughing, easygoing guy whatsoever. You're going to think I'm kidding when I tell you what this was, and I am not. And this is what started to cause me to realize something that was so mundane. And again, you're going to laugh when I say what it was, but that's how much it affected me, and I'm not kidding when I say that. In 2004, the Yankees were up 3 nothing on the Boston Red Sox. The Red Sox came back and won four straight, first time it's ever been done in MLB history. All those other things I said were true. Nothing has affected me as emotionally for such a long period of time. All the death I've been around, all the funerals I've been to, the overdoses I've been part of having to be there for somebody else, as much as that. It's a true statement. That's idol worship. I was so enraged, I actually, a really good friend of mine, uh, he took, uh, he printed out Boston Red Sox Um, things and put it on the back of my truck knowing I wouldn't see it and when I found out I literally shoved him across his desk like knocked him over the desk probably should have been fired for it I was that angry that's idol worship I had a serious problem sports had taken such a precedence in my life I had found my identity in being a Yankees fan all of these things that it never really hit me until a couple weeks ago when I said, you know, you've never actually, we were watching a documentary on Derek Jeter, he said, you've never actually <laughs> talked about this. I told you you would laugh, but I'm being dead serious. That's idol worship. And if we were to start going through all of our lives, we'd start to recognize the things that we, mundane things, things that shouldn't matter that much, but we have put such an amount of pressure on. We were designed to worship. We all worship something. Every one of us is, even from his mother's womb, a master craftsman of idols. Uh, Ken Sand, in his book Peacemaker, uh, there's a copy. By the way, if you ever want to buy books off that bookshelf, that is Oakbrook Communities. We kept it out because there's a lot of really good resources on there. Uh, Mark just recently came into my office with me and Will this last week and said, hey, I have to pack up. This is their offices back here. So I have to pack up my office, and I realized the easiest way for me to pack up is just to tell you guys whatever books you want to go to grab off the shelves. We can't turn down free books. So I'm going to be mentioning a lot of resources. Chances are I have many copies currently that I will gladly let you borrow. But from the book Peacemaker, Ken Sand writes, most of us think of an idol as a statue of wood, stone, or metal worshipped by pagan people. But the concept of idolatry is much broader and far more personal than that. An idol is anything apart from God that we depend on to be happy, fulfilled, or secure. In biblical terms, it is something other than God that we set our heart on that motivates us, that masters and rules us, or that we trust, fear, or serve. In short, it is something we love and pursue more than God. Good news for you in verse 5. Paul says, put to death idolatry. Let's close in prayer. Put to death idolatry. What is idolatry? Ed Welch writes, The true nature of all idolatry is that we have chosen to go outside the boundaries of the kingdom of God and look for blessings in the land of idols. In turning to idols, we are saying that we desire something in creation more than we desire the creator. You go to Romans chapter 1, that's what we see is uh, Paul is saying people, From when when sin first entered the world, they would go out and find a rock or a tree, and they would cut down the tree, and they would carve the tree into what they viewed God as. And then they would dedicate their worship to this carved tree. Why? Because that tree stump is everything they wanted. In idol worship, we always take something that we truly want and desire and that we think that we can control, And then we let it control us. And we look back and say, but these are just rocks. These are just pieces of wood. How stupid is that? But they would start to walk through our lives and be able to see what we are truly dedicated to. They would look at how we spend our money and see what we're truly dedicated to. They would be able to examine our lives and go, how stupid are they that they worship these things? You see, there's a battle for your hearts and minds. And the gospel shows us that our scorecard changes drastically when we follow Christ. If the scorecard we are following makes us look and act like the world around us, it is telling us that we are involved in idol worship. Think about it. You go out to a lunch with coworkers, and the things that they're complaining about are the things that you're complaining about. You're unsatisfied with your uh, marital status, whether it be married or single or, or you want kids or you don't want kids or whatever it is. And they're saying the exact same thing and it's to the point where it is controlling your life, that you are doing things that you know are wrong, that you are doing things that you know is not what God has for you, that the scorecard that God has given us you are violating because everyone else around you is doing it then we have to accept that what we have put our hearts and minds on is no different than those that do not know Christ. That's idol worship. When we start to uh, make sacrifices of the very thing that God called us to do, uh, I was going to use the other illustration is let's say all of a sudden, and sometimes these are great things. I have seen ministry and I have seen positions in ministry just as much idol worship as somebody who is addicted to crack. And I've seen that happen over and over again. Their identity is in the position and not the calling. Their identity is so wrapped up. So let's say I, I all of a sudden have this great idea for a ministry opportunity. And I was like, you know what I'm going to do to start reaching people in our community? I'm going to go to Kickin' Chicken and watch every Yankees game so I can build relationships with all the, other Yankees players, or all the other Yankees fans in the area. And you're like, okay, in concept, that's an interesting idea. I mean, I know a lot about the Yankees, I know a lot about their history, so I'm just going to go there, and then you start to realize that they play 162 games in 180 days, but I'm there every game, and all of a sudden, my wife is not enjoying the fact that I'm gone all evening, especially when they're on the West Coast, and all of a sudden, I'm not at church anymore, and you're like, hey, Rob, you've been missing a lot of church lately. It's like, "No, no, 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 this is ministry. Like, I am out there. And I am, I am having a great time, a uh, lot of good conversations. Um, let's just keep praying for me, right? My ministry opportunity. And all of a sudden, the things that God has called me to, being a husband, being a father, being an active part of a local church, then I start not really being able to give to church because it costs money to go watch these games. So my giving changes, but it's for ministry technically. Like they're not giving me the free food no matter how much i ask well all of a sudden what was started as a good thing when we line it up with what god has specifically told us to do it's become an idol and now i'm just doing something because i enjoy doing it but i've called it a ministry and i've put all this emphasis on it so how do we identify idols in our lives well again i'm so glad you asked this is where the parents get their handouts And so Chris and Jose, um, and Jose, basically if I say Jose, half the church will stand up and go help him. Um, If you're a guest here and you forgot a woman's name, just call her Sarah, chances are you're correct. And if you can't remember a guy's name, just say Jose and chances are you're correct. Um, These are handouts for you to do at home. Not right now, Uh, sit down with a uh, spouse, sit down with a roommate, sit down with, somebody who loves and cares for you, sit down with your community group and start to work through some of these things. If you're sitting here going like, I've passed every test so far, no idols in my life, uh, this will help you find those. Um, so how do we identify idols in our lives? Well, he gives us five uh, in, in these verses that continue on. and He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Why? These five are the root causes of Of every idol that I can think of, one, sexual immorality, two, impurity, three, lust, four, evil desires, and five, greed. Uh, We are not going to go into all five of those, again, because of present company, so we're going to focus on the last two. The last two are evil desires and greed. An evil desire is a self-indulgent craving that displaces proper affections for God. When we think of something that is evil, somebody with evil desires, we think of somebody, uh, Adolf Hitler comes to mind. Evil desires. He was killing people. He was, uh, it was just atrocious uh, what he did and the people that followed him did. That's evil desires. What we don't like to think about is that I am a man with evil desires because of our comparisons. We compare ourselves to Uh, other humans and what they've done, and we're like, well, I'm not that bad. We compare ourselves, if you will, to a holy God, a perfect Savior. All of a sudden, that starts to change the way that we see our desires. And in fact, anything that is us wanting to chase, that craves something, that we put the affections that we have that were meant for God towards something else, that becomes an evil desire in our life, that becomes idolatry. The second is greed. Greed is the excessive desire of acquiring more and more for oneself. So when we have a desire to get something and the reason for getting something is because it is for our own comfort that is evil. What do we always say? The gospel is always about sacrifice and humility not comfort and privilege. What we like to believe is that first we chase our comfort then we get the prestige that we want whether it's at work the position how we're viewed socially then we have time for God then we can give to God let me buy Christmas presents for everybody that I know because I know what they want and I just won't give in December or January and we'll make up for it later we chase after things because of our own desires we want to make sure we are viewed correctly We want to make sure that we are set up for the future, even though you're not guaranteed for the future. We want to make sure we have the right uh, house, vehicle, neighborhood. Uh, You can go into it. And it has nothing to do with the glory of God. It has everything to do, make sure we are viewed correctly by the people that we are so desperately trying to impress more so than God. So evil desires and greed, they demonstrate themselves in in where we spend and how we spend our money, uh, how we use the resources that God has blessed us with. Uh, They demonstrate in our time usage. They demonstrate themselves in what our relationships look like and the amount of effort that we put in for and what relationship we are chasing after uh, that we, we tend to use all of these things, money and resources and time and relationships, and we use them to better ourselves and not for God's glory. That we chase them in a way to make sure that it's what we want and not necessarily what God has for us. Anything that fits into that category is helping us identify idols in our lives. The next thing we see in verses 8 and 9 is symptoms show us the root problem. Symptoms show us the root problem. We can also call these community group hindrances. If you're wondering why your community group just isn't clicking, uh, why nobody really wants to show up, these may be parts of the problem. So let's read verse 7 through 9 again. If I can find verse 7. I know it's in here. Well, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator number one well let me start with a quote philip graham reichen said to identify your own idols ask questions like these what things take the place of god in my life where do i find my significance and my confidence what things make me really angry anger usually erupts when an idol gets knocked off the shelf The first thing as I see is Paul's writing uh, this list of things. The first one is anger. And I think it was, uh, I'm going to probably butcher this saying, I think it was Matt Chandler. I look at Cam for Matt Chandler quotes. Um, He said, when we are angry, it's because people aren't worshipping the idol we worship the way we believe that idol should be worshipped. That idol is ourselves. In other words, if I'm driving down the road, At that moment, in my head, I am the best driver on the road. And then you cut me off. And I'm like, does he not recognize how awesome I am? And that comes out in anger. Why? He isn't worshiping the idol of my life like I believe it should be worshiped. When, let's just say, for instance, I have a child that doesn't obey me. And I have to pretend and I was like, hey, go do this, and they don't, I become angry. Why? Because I'm awesome, and he's not worshiping the thing that I have found awe in, which is myself in the way that I believe somebody should worship that idol. And we do this all the time in life. Any time we are angry, The vast majority of the time, it is because we have placed such a high view on ourselves, the thing that we worship most, we just can't comprehend how somebody else can't worship it the way that we do. So it causes anger. Secondly, rage. Rage is just the above the anger with deeper roots. It is in a constant state of anger in our hearts and in our lives. Uh, Malice. Malice is to actively do evil to someone. It is premeditative hurt, whether it is physically, emotionally, verbally, whatever it is, that is filled with malice. Slander. Slander is abusive words, falsely spoken, that damage a person's reputation. Filthy language, abusive, obscene, or foul language. What I was going to do at this point on Monday, we were talking to, hey, what should we should, how do we keep the kids involved in the message this week? Like, How do we keep them on there? I was like, well, let's have them, uh, I'll just ask the question and write it down. Uh, What do mommy and daddy fight about the most? Uh, What words do mommy and daddy use the most when driving, when they scream? Uh, And I was like, no, 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 we can't do that, we can't do that. I just saw all the parents grabbing their kids' papers away. It's a joke, it's a joke. And lastly, lying. We are a giant room right now of liars. Lying is intentionally deceiving someone else with our words. Here's what I mean. I am extremely frustrated at my house. And then I drive all the way to work. I literally live right over here in Caliber 5. I drive all the way to work, and I come in, and Will sees me, like, how you doing? I'm like, I'm good. I know I'm not good. Will probably knows I'm not good. And I just lied straight to his face. Lying is one of the biggest hindrances in our community groups. We lie to each other constantly. God is a God of love, and God is a God of truth. And we have twisted around in our mind that if I really love you, I'll lie to you. Because I don't want to cause any problems. Hey, I'm sorry if I was singing too loudly. Is my voice good? Yeah, your voice is great. Didn't even notice. Ten minutes later, if I sit in front of that guy one more time, malice is going to happen. We... We ask each other, hey, do you think this is a problem that I'm doing this? No, you're good. People tend to raise their voices as they lie. I don't know if you know that or not. (laughs) Everything's all good. No problem. In community groups, if you want to really grow spiritually, be honest. Be honest where you're at. Be honest with each other. When we're told, and I've seen this used as a weapon so many times, people drop what I call truth bombs and then walk away. It's kind of like a a shock and awe campaign. They come in, they offend you, they say it in a mean way, and then they walk away. Well, Will, your beard's ugly. And then normally at some point they try and be like, I'm just speaking the truth in love. There was no love involved. It was me trying to hurt Will. But And it's a drastic example, but we do that with each other all the time. We get annoyed by somebody and then we don't know how to confront them because we've been lying to them for so long that when we finally do feel that we can talk to them about it, we do it in a hurtful way and we walk away. Telling somebody the truth in love is saying, and again, I'll use a drastic example, Will, your beard's ugly. Get in my car. We're going for a ride. We're going to go buy clippers and I will help you with this. Again, stupid example, but when we're talking about sin in somebody's life, it means that we come alongside of them, that we're willing to be there for them, that we love them, that we want to see them walk back in step with God, and so we're willing to go through it. All of these above things, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and lying. I remembered, i uh, reminded of the words of Jesus, Matthew 12, 30, 12 34, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. When you're driving down the road with a friend and somebody cuts you off and the first thing you yell is not repeatable and they look at you with shock and you're like, I am so sorry, that's not me. Or when you see an athlete or somebody on TV who gets in trouble for something that was said or done and their first thing is, ah, man, that's not me. People that know me know that's not me. Here's the truth. Yes, it is. That is you at your core. That is what your heart is full of. You just normally can keep it under wraps. So next time you're riding and somebody cuts you off, I don't know why I keep using traffic as if that's a problem around here. Somebody cuts you off and you say something and they look at you in shock just say, that's me. You got it. You got the whole thing. I've been pretending this long, but that's really me. the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. All right, on to the application for tonight. This is God's prescription. In 2 Peter um, verse 1, or chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, Peter writes to us, and to me this is such a verse of promise. Peter says, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Think about this for a second. His precious promises. You and I, first let's get a realistic view of ourselves. We are idol, worshiping liars. We all have sin in our life. But God loved us so much he sent his son to die a miserable death, to take our punishment on him so that we, sinners, hideous people, full of evil desires, full of greed, full of malicious thoughts towards other people. He called us to himself. That we can call out to him. That we can have forgiveness, that we can experience that type of love, that we can experience that type of joy and that type of peace that only a creator, God, can give. That we don't become perfect right away, but when we are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, when God looks at us, he sees his son's blood, and he sees us as righteous and blameless. And then we say, well, how could he use someone like me? And God says, because I'm that powerful. That I can use you, Rob. That I can use you to be a demonstration of just how powerful I am. Because everybody knows you can't change yourself. It's got to be a miraculous working of a Holy Spirit through God's word to draw you back to me. To draw you into how I ask you to now live. So what is God's prescription for us? And these are the passages that we've been in. Uh, verse 12 through 17. 17. Paul writes, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Key to community groups right there. Circle that. Bear with each other and forgive one another. That is a key to life. Forgiveness. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. This would take about a year to actually preach through. And that's being generous. When I read a passage, like just reading verse 16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. That's the second time I've heard Jenny uh, tell the story of of Jesus saying, well, there's this incredible lady in Thailand who in the rice paddies worships me. Nobody famous? Well, she's pretty popular among my part, where I come from. It brings me to tears almost every time. We can laugh at it, but that's what real worship is. Real worship is that through our daily life, this is what is coming out. That's all getting sidetracked. So what is God's prescriptions? Five things. Again, this is a, a very vague, if you will, um, this is taken, it's just my paraphrase from what Paul David Tripp wrote in his book, Ah, There is one copy left back there. Um, but what is God's prescription for us? How do we get rid of these idols in our lives? How do we set up this scorecard so that we are living according to what God has called us to live? Number one, take your relationships in your church seriously. Uh, that For us, that's community groups. You hear us say it all the time. We get to come together on Saturday nights, but church is what happens when you leave here before you come back here next week. Take your relationships in your church seriously. God uses these relationships to mold the characteristics, these virtues that we just read. Compassion, bearing with one another, forgiveness, mercy. Again, during the grocery giveaway, it is easy to love somebody I have never met the groceries in their car, send them over to Linda, who's going to pray for them, because they've never offended me, hurt me, said something about me, gossiped about me. We don't even know each other's names. But if it's somebody that I have to spend time with, who was raised by different parents, possibly raised in a different country, raised in a different culture, and now we come together, and then we say, well, I'm not going to go back. I don't get along with them. How is that Christ's love being demonstrated in unity? No, we listen to each other. We're there for each other. We bear with one another. Take your relationships in your church seriously. Number two, the gospel offers restful peace. We are always looking for peace. We are always looking for rest. But so much of what causes us turmoil, frustration, exhaustion, and feeling like we are running on empty is completely brought on by ourselves. We are the problem. Repeat after me. I'm the problem. know you. I know Hope kids are a lot louder than the adults. We'll try that again. I'm the problem. I'm the problem. I was right. We chase after so many things that will not last for eternity that we've exhausted ourselves, and then we give God what's left over. We've chased after peace in anything that the world has promised us, but as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, that we are just chasing after the wind. We will never catch it. Those things don't last for eternity. I call them phantoms. You chase and chase and chase a phantom, you end up tired and you still haven't caught it. Paul David Tripp in his book of Oz says, rest for the heart only comes when you are getting your identity and personal security from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is the only thing that offers restful peace. In a couple years, we'll finally make it to Matthew 11 and we're going to do a whole part of study on that. Number three, understand your life is no longer yours but God's. Understand your life is no longer yours but God's. Romans 12, 1 and 2, a living sacrifice. How many of you watched the documentary I asked you to watch last week? Two. Three, four. All right. We failed. <laughs> watch Sheep Among Wolves, part two. You can watch part one, but watch part two. The underground church in countries that are controlled by ISIS. The conversations that they have to have as married couples, the conversations they have to have as families, why they say goodbye to each other when they walk out the door, not knowing if they'll ever see each other again. But when asked, they say, my body's a living sacrifice. If I endure torture, if I endure all of these cruelties of mankind, if I endure torture up to death, what a blessing. When we are going through the Sermon on the Mount, what is a blessing? It is when we get to partake in a characteristic of God, that God would see me as fit to be able to go through just a little part of the suffering that He went through for me. We see a living sacrifice as maybe I'll throw 20 bucks in the offering. What a living sacrifice I am. I went to church more than twice last month. What a living sacrifice I am. They walk out the door not knowing if they're coming back that night because they could be caught, tortured, and killed. And they say, Awesome is our God. I get to be a living sacrifice. We need to seriously consider. One quote from the documentary, uh, the woman, they finally was able to escape Iran. Her life is in constant danger, and she came to the United States. She was here for about a year or two, and she says, I want to go back to Iran. And they're thinking, why would you want to go back there? And she says, because the Christians in America are asleep under a satanic lullaby, and I'm feeling myself getting sleepy. Send me back. Your life is no longer yours but God's. Number four. Be committed to God's word. Be committed to God's word. Never in the history since Jesus walked the earth have we had access to as many resources of studying God's word as we have right now. And for the last 20 or 30 years, the United States is the most biblically illiterate it has ever been in its history. Be committed to God's word. Your actions always communicate where your commitment is. Please tell me if you're supposed to come over to my house to watch a game, say, you know what, I haven't read the Bible enough this week. i got to stay home and do that. I will not argue with you. If we do not know God's word, ministry opportunities turn into just earthly advice, giving. Number four, be committed to God's word. And number five, look for opportunities to live on mission. Look for opportunities to live on Mission. God has put in your circle of influence people that do not know Him, and He has put you there to be a missionary to them. Are you more interested in making yourself look awesome or God look awesome? Because you can't do both. Look for opportunities to live on mission. We've said it before. If you really want to feel like you rely on God's Word, if you really want to hunger and thirst for righteousness, engage in conversations with people that don't know the Lord because they will ask you questions that your only choice is to run back to your Bible. Pray that God would give you the answers and study. We don't study because we don't engage in those conversations. We don't pray because our hearts are much more set on other things than the fact that our community every day, every day more people move to this area and every day Somerville becomes more lost. Until we learn to live together in unity, until we really become a living sacrifice, until we really have our hearts broken over the people that live next door to us in our communities that we shop with, who do not know the Lord and will spend eternity forever away from him and his glory. Until we come to the realization of those things, why will anything change? Look for opportunities to live on mission. Again, this is just the beginning of a conversation. We have a plethora of books. We want to have these talks. Community groups are starting up again. I had about three hours worth of material, and I packed it all into 25 minutes. If anybody asks, it was 25 minutes. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much that you are an all-powerful God. That you love us. That you offer peace. That you offer joy. So many things, Lord. Nothing, nothing that we deserve. But you love us. You want that intimate relationship that only a creator can have with its creation. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who has never called out to you, confessing that they know they've sinned, that they know they need a Savior, Lord, I pray that you would convict their hearts their minds, that they would call out to you and that you would become the forgiver of their sins and the leader of your life. Lord, I pray for those that are in here that do know you, that you would continue to convict our hearts, that we would, as the song says, that the things of earth would grow strangely dim in the view of your glory and grace. I pray that you work in our hearts, Lord, that we work together, that we go arm and arm, that we bear one another's burdens, that we love each other, that we have unity that we can demonstrate to the world just how powerful you are and that they're asking us, how can I know this Jesus too? I pray these things in Jesus' name.